Blog Talk Radio. And we're live today on Backroom Politics. Is is America at war with the W word? Is there a disconnect between the White House and the State Department? Is this really a counterterrorism operation? What does America believe? The NFL has had a bad week. Can the game and the league afford to take this kind of bad press? Scotland the Brave and the Independent. Scotland goes to the polls this week to vote for independence. And what are the ramifications of an I vote? And the Clintons are in Iowa. Is this the sign that pro-Hillary supporters needed and wanted? That and tell me a story today on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Backroom. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It is Tuesday, which means it's time for the best radio talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me on my left, as he does every Tuesday, former eight-term member of Congress representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District, Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. How are you today? To my 11 o'clock, he is the former Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation and floor chief for them. Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hello, Jeff. At my 12 o'clock, he is the former lobbyist for 20th Century Fox and the former executive director of the great state of Maryland's Democratic Party, Carl Tuvin. Hello, Carl. Hello, Justin. And at my 11 o'clock, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who's worked for at last count four presidents, longtime Senate staffer and Washington insider. He is a very handsome and distinguished fellow from the Stimson Center, the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Tuesday. Hello, Tuesday. Ah, <laughs> oh, not hello, Justin. I'm chopped meat apparently today. And to my right, ironically, he is the he is the bar licensed attorney here in Washington D.C. He is the political operative known as Dan Lipner Esquire. Hello, Daniel. Uh, hello, Justin, and I'm glad to see you. Oh, that's good. I'm glad. And there is somebody behind you. Outside on the street, on the phone. You got to be on time. Got to be on time, kid. You want introductions? You got to be on time. Hey, listen, lot big show to talk about. We've got a lot of good subjects to uh, discuss today. The big one right now we want to talk with is the continuing struggle of this administration and the crisis involving the ISIS folks there in the Middle East. Uh, If you were not watching this past week, the White House has said. 
according to uh, White House Press Secretary, that the, that the American government and America is at war with ISIS. However, Secretary of State John Kerry and his team down at the State Department call this a counterterrorism operation. Bob, this seems like a matter of semantics, but there's some big consequences regarding which verbiage we're using, not only here in America, but to our allies abroad. Well, I don't see it as a war because there are no boots on the ground, and that's what it takes. We don't have any troops that are marching over there and doing these things. We're talking to allies. We're talking to allies who fundamentally, Sunnis don't want to fight next to Shiites on the same side. And that's what's happening right now. It's just, it's not happening. But, Alan Moore, why is the semantics of are we at war with ISIS? I mean, right now, America is saying if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, chances are it's a duck. Is this really a war that we're fighting against ISIS? Of course it is. And the White House did come around, and even John Kerry later acknowledged, okay, okay, so it's a war. Um, I mean, we we have a defined enemy, and we're throwing enormous resources, huge amounts of money. Um, We've we've only got a a, a total of about 1,000 individuals who are going to be over there, at least for now, advising. We've also got General Dempsey, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, saying today uh, before a Senate committee, hey, um, we're starting out without uh, extensive combat troops, but we'll see what happens. And if I think that... uh, we need more. I will, I'm prepared to make that recommendation. Dan Lipner, with now it seems, according to what Alan's saying and, and the words of General Martin Dempsey, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel, uh, and even Secretary of State John Kerry, war is the operative term. Is that too much right now for the American public to bear? It's not too much for the American public to bear, but we're not at war since Congress has not declared war. On ISIS. Is, is this, in fact, a counterterrorism operation? It can't be anything other than a counterterrorism operation. Only Congress can declare war. Congressman Al Swift, once you get settled in, will have you join the conversation. But Congress just being a gentleman for one of the few times in my life. You get introduced when you're on time. After that, you're on your own. Denise Krebs here, by the way. And Congressman Al, Dan brings up a very distinct uh, issue of we have not, Carl. Really, we're on the air, sir. <laughs> we, Dan, what did you do? Like, cell phones on. Don't like that. The the reality is, we've got Dan Lipner talking about the fact that we don't have a exact declaration of war from Congress. Right. Right. You, as a former seated member of Congress, are you are you on board with that mindset? In fact, that this is still a counterterrorism operation. I. I've always been a little troubled about trying to get a declaration of war now in, in under these terms in the way the world is today. I think when that was, you know, originally established, I think it made sense. But uh, what's a war? You, you, you can be fighting people for years without it being a war. Uh, and it, I'm not sure that it makes it easier for anybody to declare it a war. Dan Lipner. But doesn't that make it more of a, a more of a moral hazard that the only person who who gets their hands dirty on making the decision is the president, that Congress can go hands off without actually having to say up or down? Of course. 
Of course it does. But then what are you going to do? Congress is Congress, and it's uh, uncontrollable, and and uh, they're going to they're going to be hiding behind a rock uh, on difficult votes. And uh, if the president if you, demanded it, could wouldn't they be forced to actually vote? It would. They would look very bad if they didn't. But uh, I, with, with these clowns up there today, I don't know what they would do. Carl Tubin. Uh, he took the words right out of my mouth. I mean, these people are allowed to do anything and uh, even walk out. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of members don't want to vote for a war. Uh, they don't want to have that on their record. And uh, it could present a real problem. Uh, who knows what would happen in the Republican caucus if the Tea Party all of a sudden said, we don't want to spend the, spend the money on uh, airplanes, our people flying over Syria and Iraq and bombing. Well, and that's a, legi- and that's a legitimate argument. Wars cost money. We, we just spent two wars in Afghanistan and Iraq that nobody budgeted for. We were reaping the consequences of not just the, the, the actual fighting over there, but but dealing with the consequences of the wounded soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines that are here, that are still living with those injuries. There are real costs. And the power of the purse ring is Congress. Yeah, Congressman Al. But, but I, I think that we, whether we like it or not, we are, at least for the time being, still the most powerful country in the world. And that makes us uh, have some responsibilities uh, in the world that, that we often would rather not have to deal with. Uh, and if you give Congress the option of, of putting a stop to our playing the role of a, of a leader in the world, uh, they, they're, they're very much likely to take it. But Congressman Hill, I mean, if we do not declare war, if we do not have a formal option, and we do call this a counterterrorism operation, a conflict, a police action, whatever insert term you want to use, are we in fact taking away ourselves as a force in the global community? I don't think so. I, <clears throat> look, when, you, when, you, when, you, when there are people shooting at each other, there is a war. Now, if, if, if the lawyers, pardon me, uh, want to be able to parse this, you know, and get it so that it's legally correct, it doesn't change anything. If you're shooting at each other, it's a war. Uh, hold, hold on, hold on. Alan Moore. I hope everybody was listening to Al because he was 100% right. When there's armed conflict involving our government and an enemy, it's war. We can call. We can diddle around. It's not a, it's not a formal declaration of the Congress. I think the Congress is probably going to step in here in coming days. The House has already acted, basically authorizing uh, spending to train Syrian uh, so-called rebels, probably in Saudi Arabia, so they get to embrace that that part of it. The president said, "I've got the authority to do this." So whatever we call it, but, I'm with Al. But Al, so Alan, let me, let, me let, me let me interrupt. Let me interrupt real quick. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me interrupt real quick. When, when we when we talk about a war, according to the plan that President Obama laid out last week, a lot of this action is going to involve airstrikes and air cover. Correct. The reality is, can we really have a quote-unquote war without boots on the ground? Is America going to buy that argument? We, we can do it under any, any rules we want. The fact is, we've got about a thousand people on the ground anyway, most of which, as I said before, are wearing boots. Um, 
we, we're not ramping beyond that for now, but as Dempsey said today, General Dempsey said, if I think we need to put more troops in there, I'll be asking for that from the president. Denise Crack. And in about a month or two, he's going to be asking for those additional troops. I mean, more than one retired general came out over the weekend and said, you cannot win this without people on the ground. Drones won't work. And I respect those men and women who came out and said that because they're right. I just, I just heard that from General... Uh, General Bob. Yeah. <laughs> General Bob. Yeah. We got a thousand people over there now. They are teaching, training. That's what they're doing. They're not fighting. When we start fighting, that's a war. We put soldiers on the ground. That's a war. Alan Moore. Our teachers are going to be embedded with Iraqi army troops. They're going to be carrying guns and, and, and wearing flak jackets and helmets. Um, they're, they'll be leading from behind, perhaps, but they're not going to be back in a bunker somewhere uh, or over in Saudi Arabia teaching. That's a different proposition Lipner, altogether. It's almost like a creeping Vietnam all over again. And it, <laughs> don't, don't, don't gloat, don't gloat, Denise. It's not attractive. Which brings me back to all the more With all the more reason for, for us to have a real debate, not to leave this strictly in the hands of the executive, but actually the re representatives of the people, which is what Congress. And Alan's correct. That is exactly. Yes, they did authorize uh, spending for, for training uh, of, the, uh, of the Syrian rebels. That's still a political cop-out. The, the, the country deserves better than this, and it deserves a real conversation. But let me, ask, let me ask this question to Alan. I mean, we go back and we look at, for example, uh, Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait. President Bush then enacted the War Powers Act, then giving him 30 days to take armed action in support of Operation Desert Shield. That seems to be a similar precipice that Obama might be using in his actions against ISIS. Is that accurate? Well, he has various choices. I certainly would, would welcome a debate in the Congress of some length. Uh, they've got a little problem now. They don't have a whole lot of time between trying to get, get some work done, like spending for the, for the new fiscal year that starts October 1, and going home and running for, uh, uh, for elections. But... But he, he can, he, the president has some options here. He can bring the Congress in more or less. The Congress can assert itself more or less. Um, but but the, I, I think that, that with regard to the semantic question of are we at war, yes. It is an armed conflict now between the U.S. military and an enemy that we have defined are shooting at and killing members of. Well, let me just interrupt Let me just interrupt real quick. There's breaking news coming out of Washington right now. Uh, President Obama has just recently announced that they will be putting boots on the ground in Western Africa to deal with the Ebola situation. Again, another situation where we're putting armed, armed troops into a region. Now, whether the war is against a virus or the war is against ISIS, that's still another tax on our, on our already strung out tight military. Denise Kraut? All right. Here's a question I've got for this. When you're talking 3,000, are we talking about doctors or are we talking about the boys and girls that built the tent? Well, you're talking. You're talking both. There's okay. going to be. There's going to have to be medcom, yeah. medical command people. You're right. There's going to have to be logistical support, transportation units, and there's. You're going to have to provide security for all these operations. Because let's be honest, this is not exactly a 
cool icebox regarding Islamic militants in that region. And I think this is where we're going to get some very interesting American response if and when an American service member dies because they went over to Africa to help with the Ebola. Let me ask let me ask the question to Bob Hines. Bob, is this a situation where the president might be biting off more than he can chew? I think that any time you, you uh, assist in trying to control an epidemic kind of uh, in, uh, thing like this Ebola virus, I think is a humanitarian operation. It's a good thing to do. I'm glad we're doing it. And it belongs to be done. And also, not Carl, war. No, Carl Tubin. You know, it also shows leadership of this country, which we have done in the past, as we've talked about. And uh, the president doing this, we are, you know, we're the country that um, produces a lot of these vaccines through NIH and other sources. And <clears throat> doing this is it's humanitarian, and it's, it's good, and it's leadership, well, real leadership. It's leadership, but here's the thing. Ebola is not avian flu. Avian flu was passed via coughs and uh, close contact. Ebola is coming out in different ways. And I think that's where you're going to see, and I'm willing to bet more than one military person says, I don't want to go there. I'll be very blunt. I, I think that's going to happen. I think it's a good thing that we're going there, but I think you're going to start hearing some dissension within the military that they don't want to do this. Alan Moore. Yeah, there's, there's more than a humanitarian element to this. Uh, not that the humanitarian part is not a key ingredient and important, but we're trying. Th- th- this, this virus is moving so fast and killing at a rate of 50 plus percent of those infected that we're facing possible instability in that region. We're facing the possibility of mutations of the virus because be, they're already be airborne. And, if, and it's possible that they could become a, a, a even more contagious than they currently are now. And if, if there's an incubation period with Ebola of anywhere from two days to about three weeks. So you can become infected, but, in a, but, but show no symptoms, feel no symptoms for as long as three weeks or even longer. So there's, there's, this, is, this is this other risk of, the, of people who are infected leaving one country going elsewhere. This is how it migrates. So there's self-interest on the part of, of the U.S. here that goes beyond uh, the humanitarian aspects, which is why we're talking about a major deployment of up to 3,000 people and a total of another, we've, we've invested about $100 million already and we're talking about another $700 million. This is big. We're not doing that just out of the goodness is this of another? Hearts. Is this another front on a war on Ebola? This sounds like, I mean, if you're talking about putting 3,000 armed troops... No, no, or, no, no, no. I mean, we're not talking about 3,000 armed troops. We're talking about using the Defense Department because they are the only enterprise entity in the world that has the ability to move that much stuff that fast. It's the reason we went into Rwanda during, during the Clinton presidency 
Nobody else could move the material. It's not a bunch of guys with guns shooting at Ebola viruses. This is a massive humanitarian outreach that, that but it's another, it's supplies, etc. And, and let me be clear. 500 million reprogrammed inside the Fed. But let me, let me be clear. I am complete support of what the president's doing regarding the Ebola virus. That is a clear international health crisis. However, it is still using a, a, a faction of the Department of Defense, which is already strong. Now, understanding the fact that there will also probably be uh, civilians from the Centers for Disease Control, CDC, NIH. There will also be other civilians that will be there in support of it, but it's still putting American armed forces onto another front at the same time that you're talking about putting another front on ISIS. It's a two-front it's, situation. It's different people, but the real question is, where does the money re- get reprogrammed from? You don't. It's $500 million that will be reprogrammed inside the defense budget. It's got to come from some place, and that defense budget is declining, stretching our capabilities in the first instance. Now we're going to somehow squeeze another $500 million and dedicate it but, to this. But, but Denise, this, I mean, going to Alan's point, though, you're talking about taking operational funds out of DOD, which would normally be used for, let's say, dealing with the conflict against ISIS, versus trading that money and putting it into MedCom. Yeah. Where do you, where do you rob Peter not, to pay no, Paul? No, there, there's a lot of money flushing around right now in DOD. This, this is not ISIS money. This is probably money that they haven't spent on other programs. I'm willing to bet a call went out, what have you not spent? And then once they got that numbers back, you know, once they got that information back, they said, congratulations, you're now sharing part of the kitty. The money's gone there. So sorry. Hope you feel better next year. Yeah, Alan Moore. Denise makes a very good point. Remember where we are. We're we're mid-September, and the fiscal year of the U.S. government ends September 30th. There's always money left over at the end. What they call in government sweep-up money. People plan for that, and then they and then they they spend that money. They commit that money in the last few weeks. Well, some of these people who had big plans for what they were going to do at the end of the fiscal year are suddenly having to reassess those plans in order to find the $500 million that we're talking about, if it's supposed to come from the year. And I don't know the answer to that. The other part of this is that, you know, we, we, the two doctors that came back were given us uh, an experimental serum uh, to, uh, to combat, combat the Ebola. This will give money to manufacture that serum and also um, uh, distribute it if, if we can. But President Obama. But President Obama. First of all, I, I, I don't think that Pfizer or Novartis are going to be getting a good chunk of this money to develop the serum. I, I, I think that that would call into all kinds of questions. You know, use of federal funding. However, what I will say though, and I do want to comment along your lines, Carl, is the president today did say that the world has a responsibility. To go after this. Now you're talking, I mean, the serums that we develop are not unlike the serums that are being developed in the United Kingdom, in Germany, in France, who have a huge biotech community. So at that, at that stage, do we not have a responsibility to ask perhaps NATO to do this quick response force to help attack this war on Ebola as well as attack ISIS? Denise Krepp. Denise Krepp. Carl. 
Yeah. We better be going to our allies and saying, come on, this is as much of a threat to you as it is to us. But I'd like to put in a plug right now for military medicine. Um, there's a little-known program in, in the military that's uh, located in Peru that does some very innovative work on uh, diseases. The military has been looking at diseases for several years now. It, it goes back and feel they want to make sure that if they put their troops into harm's way, that they are developing their own vaccines. So it's happening in uh, Peru, and they were actually working on avian flu years ago to help the uh, private sector develop solutions. So I just want to give a you know a shout out to them and say you know I hope you guys can uh, you know get a little bit of sleep over the next couple of months because it's going to be a long. We've got four minutes left in this segment. I want to go back to the the, the question on ISIS. We'll continue to monitor the president's uh, comments regarding the Ob- the uh, Ebola issue, but. You know, now our friends on CNN are looking at ISIS and they're calling them a a super terrorist group, unlike anything that we've seen before. It seems to me, Bob Hines, that this this government, not just Democrats, but even Republicans, still seem to be scratching their head. You know, do we deal with this as a traditional military force, which they use traditional military force tactics? Do we deal with this as we would al-Qaeda, as terrorists hiding out? in plain sight, this, this is a conflict that we've never imagined going after. Well, ISIS is different than uh, some of these other organizations in the Middle East, uh, like Al-Qaeda or whatever. Uh, it's different because it's holding land. It isn't just doing, you know, it isn't making shots at one person. It's not, not bombing a, a hotel or an embassy. It is holding territory. It is in acting like a city-state, if you will, or a regional state. And it's holding property, it's holding land, it's recruiting resources from all kinds of places. Uh, Even some Americans are fighting for ISA, apparently. But the fact of the matter is, it is a different situation, and it it is a more more dangerous situation for us or anybody else that they they don't want to play, they don't like, because they are more. They have more wealth, more soldiers, and uh, a better organization and structure than than uh, Al Qaeda had, as an example. Dan Lipner, is in, is this operation against ISIS? President Obama, in his speech last week to the nation last Wednesday, stated that this is that ISIS is not Islamic. This is not a war against Islam. This is a war against a terrorist operation. It, is the Islamic community globally ready to accept that argument as part of our uh, response to ISIS? Well, last I saw, uh, the leadership of Qatar, uh, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, uh, Egypt, all said it's un-Islamic. So I'm willing to trust them on their own religion that ISIS is not Islamic. Sounds good to me. Uh, round the table real quickly, Congressman Al. Do we get a declaration of war out of Congress in the next two weeks, yes or no? I hate to predict anything on this Congress, but uh, I'm betting no. Bob Hines. It depends on what the president asks for one. I suspect he would get it. Carl Tubin. Same answer. Alan Moore. Declaration of war, no. Uh, Vote of support for what's going on, yes. Denise Krepp. He's not going to get it. There'll be no declaration. No declaration. Dan Lipner. In a striking example of profiles and cowardice, I suspect the answer is no. 
Correct answer is no. There will be no declaration of war. We're going to continue to use drones. When we come back, we're going to talk about the politics of the NFL. Several, several damaging reports coming out of the NFL now calling into question the, uh, the chairmanship or the commissionership of Roger Goodell. And it also puts the Players Association in a difficult situation. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Backroom is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Backroom, Go to www.shellysbackroom.com slash private-party. Shelly's Backroom, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also the place for private parties. Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, we're going to switch gears a little bit. First, I want to make an apology uh, to Alan Moore last week. Uh, Alan suggested that we talk about the Ray Rice situation, and I, I quashed that. I just think that there was too much publicity around it. I think there, there, some of the arguments glorified. Uh, in support of what Ray Rice did. A lot of arguments actually condemned Ray Rice. But it seems that the situation has gotten much larger and a much more difficult situation for the NFL and has become now very political. Uh, in the time that Ray, the accusations against Ray Rice came out, for those of you who don't know, Ray Rice, a superstar for the Baltimore Ravens in the NFL, uh, there is video of him at a casino in Atlantic City where he closed fist punched his then fiance now wife 
and knocked her against the wall, knocked her out cold. It is then footage of him dragging his fiance out of the elevator, then being surrounded by security, and then handed over to uh, investigators from Atlantic City Police Department. Since then, the NFL sent down a two-game suspension for Mr. Rice, and that caused a hoopla of crises. Since then, it has now come to light that there is now a situation involving Kevin Hardy of the Carolina Panthers. He, uh, as recently as six months ago, was under investigation and continues to be under investigation for domestic violence against his wife. Also, uh, Miami, uh, I'm sorry, Minnesota Vikings superstar Adrian Peterson has now been indicted and has been arrested and booked and out on his on bail regarding an incident involving his son in which he disciplined, according to some sources, his son to the point of showing open wounds and welts on him requiring medical treatment. He is now been sus- he was suspended pending the investigation, and breaking news today out of New York, the NFL and the, and the Minnesota Vikings have since reinstated Adrian Peterson, and he is now scheduled to play this Sunday. This is a huge crisis for the NFL that, the, that America's sweetheart sport has not seen in its existence. And at the same time, we also have to talk about the fact that once they've handed down the two-game suspension for Ray Rice, they also handed down a year-long suspension for one player for smoking a joint. So there's all kinds of problems inside the NFL. What's that? They, they have since rescinded that one as of today, correct. But we, there's a huge problem here. This is, there's no question that the billions and billions of dollars that the NFL generates has gotten the attention, some bad attention lately. Alan Moore, uh, when you look at the situation with Ray Rice, we talked about it a little bit after the show, uh, when the two-game suspension comes down and then an indefinite suspension as a result of public uh, outcry, is is the NFL and Commissioner Goodell out of touch with reality, or is he trying to protect the big money business that is American football? Well, this is something that got out of hand, um, reminding us that human behavior in this world, especially it would appear, uh, human behavior among among professional athletes who are in a, engaged in a violent sport um, may be a little more prone than some of the rest of us, although this this violence towards women and violence towards children is not simply a matter of class or race or culture. You can find it anywhere. They're just somehow... There's a lot of attention and maybe uh, a little higher probability of professional football players. I don't know. What's happened, though, is, is they've got punishments for some things. They don't have punishments for other bad behavior. What they really need to do is define exactly what their rules are, inform every player what those rules are, and then stick with them. Uh, the, 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 the thing that concerned me about the Ray Rice incident was that, that, that New Jersey law enforcement people looked at the evidence, made a decision not to prosecute, but to urge counseling for the couple. 
the, the, the fiancé now wife at the time said, yes, I provoked him. He said, yes, I hit her. Yes, we are going to counseling together. When that became public, he got his, his two-game suspension. Then the video came out. Then the Ravens released him. Um, and then the NFL indefinitely suspended him. Now the players' union has stepped in and said, you can't do it that way. You can't just arbitrarily set new rules as they come down. And I find, you know, I, I'm, some level of sympathy towards that point of view, that you need to know what the rules are, and everybody needs to be informed. Um, otherwise, you never know what you're going to unleash. But, Congressman Al, if... if if the Players Association, under the leadership of DeMora Smith, a known Washington figure uh, here in the district, uh, great attorney and very sharp businessman, if DeMora Smith, whose responsibility it is to represent and defend his members in a collective bargaining agreement, which there is, if he does come out and defend Ray Rice and his actions, does DeMora Smith and the NFL Players Association stand the chance of being saying of saying look all you're doing is encouraging or condoning this type of violence against women by your player members that's a really slippery slope for the players association well the whole thing is a slippery slope i think i don't understand how the nfl became the mother and father of uh of all the children of its players uh that's what police are for and the police were involved in this, and the police should be involved in this. Uh, and the idea that the, the NFL, uh, which is a strange organization of spoiled rich people running things and so forth, <clears throat> I don't see where it, it should be expected to, to do this. I don't think it would do a good job of, of uh, policing this. I think you have police to do that. And uh, so I see that <laughs> I think there, there's going to be a rebuttal right now. Denise Crack. It, it's not a rebuttal. I mean, I agree with Alan. On the legal side, he's going to win with regards to the, the players' union because you can't merely fire somebody for an action that is not already a listed offense. So he, he's going to win. Politically, is that going to put the players' union in a hot spot? Absolutely it is. Whether or not they decide to, you know, pull his arm and say, eh, this is not the time nor the fight we want to take, that's what we should be watching out for. With regards to the New Jersey police, no, it doesn't really surprise me that they said, hey, you know, we want you to seek counseling. I can't tell you how many people that I know and have talked to who have been abused or have been assaulted where the police have said, we don't want a prosecutor. The, the prosecutors have said, we don't want a prosecutor. There isn't enough. Go seek counseling or go have a better life. Now, what I can say, and I, and I want to bring this up, is that at least in the past two years, more and more Americans have been talking about rape, sexual assault, and domestic abuse. And you know that because you know what the platform is for the new Miss America? The new Miss America's platform that she announced on, on Sunday was domestic assault and rape. Oh, well, interesting. That interesting. Bob Hines. What hap what the problem we have here is that, number one, you've got the league, you know, deciding what is what they're going to do with people who are caught, they, they find in, in domestic violence. You've got the players' union. 
separately arguing with the for the players. The two of those those two groups have got to get together and put put together a very strong set of rules and penalties for what you know for the violations of those rules. That's the best way to do it. Let those two organizations get together and settle the, and fix the matter so that everybody knows what the situation is if there is any violence. Congressman Al. But that doesn't answer my question. Is Why does the league itself have any business in this at all? It's a police thing. And, and uh, you know, the NFL writes the rules of how you play the game. I don't know whether they write the rules of how you raise your children. Well, apparently, they, they, I mean, they do. There are ethics clauses in most professional football contracts, Congressman. There are, uh, there, there, there are situations where the police will not prosecute, but there still needs to be punitive action brought against players who demonstrate illegal or bad action. They're still, it's a reputation. It, it, these, these are players that are looked up as role models in many communities. And if you have your players sitting there, uh, you, know, you know, conducting domestic violence against their spouses, or in the case of Adrian Peterson, over-disciplining your child, or in the case of Kevin Hardy, just all-out beating somebody, that there needs to be punitive da damages. That hits them in the pocketbook. I want to make it clear that I don't support any of that activity on the part of any of these guys. I just don't understand how it became the NFL's responsibility to discipline this. Dan Lipner. Well, year, years ago, Charles Barkley, basketball, I know it's a different sport, had a commercial that said, I am not a role model, I'm a basketball player. And I have more than a little bit of sympathy for that point. However, to Denise's point, it is a good thing. We are now talking about this issue. This isn't a new issue. It's just new that we're actually talking about it this publicly. And the fact that the White House has actually commented on the Ray Rice situation has set a different tone. And the fact that rape and domestic violence are a conversation that we are now having and not just saying it's something that's brushed aside. But I do, I do agree. There should be more law enforcement than it is than it is league. The, the league's response has been mob justice, and because there happens to be video of it, um, the 49ers player who I don't know his name who actually was convicted played because there's no video. So the, the you plug another media source, the Onion said, you know, Roger Goodell took a, a hard stand against domestic violence caught on video, and that's basically what it is. So much so that even Adrian Peterson, who's, who was indicted, and he's also the best running back in the NFL, yeah, well, we're going to allow that to work its way through the justice system. There's clear standards that's being adjusted depending on what the mob, what the mob wants. It is not a legal system. Bob Hines. One of the reasons that I think that it's important that the league and the Players Association, you know, set some guidelines, rules, and penalties, because... Let's 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 look at it this way. If you're you get in trouble, the police, you know, pull you in and you serve ninety days or you know, go to a counseling group or something like that, that's one thing. But if you get docked your your money, that's where they're gonna get that's where they're gonna see the, the players are gonna say, My God, yeah, I'm I'm gonna lose my big house, I'm not gonna have my cars, I don't like it, I'm not gonna do it. I, it's too it's too much of a penalty. And that is very important. 
And we need some. We need them to recognize that if you do it, you're going to really pay for it, and you're going to be sorry. Denise Crap. I agree with you. I mean, you have to pay for it because for too long, people knew about it. It's not like people didn't know that somebody was hit his wife. Of course they knew. People just didn't say it. No, that's the big difference. And now, if you're going to penalize them, you've got to set those rules up ahead of time. Hit them where and it hurts. If you've got to hit them where it hurts, and it has to be obvious. If for no other reason, then you're going to lose the female fans. I mean, they've done some pretty innovative um, things to attract the female audience. I mean, they're putting in um, some very high-profile Condi Rice females in football jerseys and advertising in Southern Living in other female magazines. Well, you're, you're talk, well, you're talking about because you're, women aren't going to support men who beat other women. Well, according to the NFL, women make up 45% of the total fan base. Yep. They make up 33% of the total TV viewing base for uh, for American football. Uh, Alan Moore, that's big money, and we're starting to see the ramifications. In the case well, of Adrian Peterson... Radisson Hotels has suspended its support of not only the Minnesota Vikings, but the NFL until, according to them, they clean up their act. Yeah, I, I, uh, the, the, that 45% of the female fan base, I, I can call me a skeptic. They're not, those aren't the women I know. Now, they're, having said that... You're not even part of the fan base. Having said that, but having said that, whatever the number is, it's a sizable number, and they can't just blow off female fans, whatever their number, however much they may pay attention. I want to speak to Al's point, because I think it's a really important point. We do have a legal system. We have law enforcement, and, and these people are prosecuted or not prosecuted. That, though, should not and cannot bind. It can inform, but it cannot bind the league in football, in baseball, in basketball, the league and the owners have powerful financial and community interests in maintaining a standard that, again, is informed by the law, but it doesn't necessarily have to be bound by. So they, they were long fights over drug testing. And, and not just uh, not drugs like marijuana, which can get penalties, but especially performance-enhancing drugs, um, which is cheating. Um, and they have dabbled all these leagues uh, going in, in the last uh, you know, 25, 30 years trying to clean up the game. But Alan Moore, like, like Pete Rose gambling, it didn't really harm anyone, arguably, but it violated the rules. You have a, you need, you, there's, a, there's room for rules, but there's room, there's an important place that those rules be negotiated and be transparent and known and people are informed, but, not just made up but on if the we have a situation, But if we have a situation, going to Al's point, uh, Congressman Al says, you know, this, this is an issue for law enforcement. What we've seen with law enforcement, and there's now criticism coming out against the Atlantic City Police Department and county prosecutors and the district attorney in that jurisdiction that said that they gave him preferential treatment because the investigators knew, oh, crap, this is Ray Rice. Hey, can I get your autograph situation? It's O.J. Simpson situation. It's preferential treatment for a visible celebrity football player did, in fact, 
his celebrity give him a little bit of preferential treatment, or should he have been prosecuted? I don't know if it did or not, but all I'm saying is you, you can't just leave it to law enforcement. The league itself has its own financial interests and self-interest, and it has the right to impose rules, ideally and hopefully in concert with the, with the Players Association, and those rules can be anything that they in their collective judgment think is... Uh, is for the, the general betterment of everyone. Denise Krupp. To, get, you know, to answer your question, no, he didn't get preferential treatment because he was Ray Rice. It's just a problem that happens right now within the judicial system. Prosecutors aren't prosecuting all of the cases that come before them. It is extremely difficult I mean, to prosecute these cases because it's going to turn into a he said, she said if there isn't a video. And then you have folks Quite frankly, and it goes back a long time that they don't prosecute these crimes, Justin. I mean, it, again, I can give you anecdotal evidence of people, you know, not going to court, and those who did go to court were put through such the ringer that people said, "I don't want to go through that experience." Should, should if in fact, it, uh, Ray Rice is reinstated, and and we haven't even talked about the Kevin Hardy situation. Kevin Hardy is still playing. The situation with Ray Rice, if Ray Rice is reinstated, does he or should he see another day as a professional football player on, on, a, on a football field? My personal belief is that he shouldn't see another day, but I put my legal hat on and he will see another day. Bob Hines, you agree? I think so. I believe that Denise is right. But, do, I mean, but if you look at it, Dan Lipner, from a, an aesthetic point of view... What owner is going to sign Ray Rice with the thought process is, hey, you just signed to a multi-million dollar deal, although he may be a great back, the reality is he's still on video beating his now wife. And you think that would stop Dan Snyder from hiring him? Well, I'm asking the question. Well, I mean, first of all, the the Eagles picked up Michael Vick after he was a felon. for dogfighting and a couple other horrific things. Um, Ben Roethlisberger, who had his own little legal issues uh, with uh, mistreating women in in a bathroom in a bar in Pittsburgh, uh, there there have been more than a few issues out there. That being said, it's the, to Alan's point, that you you do need rules. You do need an actual system out there. And, and also, the criminal justice system in this country is not just punitive. It's also corrective. And ideally, that everyone can be re- rehabilitated. And we don't know. We, we do not know what is fully in the head of Ray Rice. We don't know if this is the only incident. There's a whole lot we don't know. In an ideal world, we fix the bad behavior. We don't just throw people away after it's occurred. Carl Tubin. The NFL has hired people now, women, to advise them on, on this whole issue. Uh, and I, you know, I think it's, I think the thing that has to happen that Al said is that the players union and the NFL have to sit down and make a structure for this whole thing. Um, it's going to be excruciating because the players union and the NFL 
differ on a lot of things. It takes a long time for them to get something done. Well, the word coming out of the, that's, that's what that's what should happen. Well, the word coming out of New York today is is in fact that the those talks have already begun between the Players Association and the league, and they're active as we speak. Denise Kraft. Well, and it's in their collective interest to sit down and say we need to deal with something because it's, you know at the end of the day it's both. You know, both of them have a bottom line that's going to be impacted, both the player's salary and the income that comes into the team. What I'm concerned about, though, is the long-term impact. You know, you can hire four women. That's great. That's wonderful. Congratulations. You finally did it. Are you calling this a knee-jerk reaction, Denise? Oh, my goodness. Am I ever. Are you actually going to listen to them, and are you actually going to make some changes, or is this merely a fig leaf and say, it's okay, we've done something. Don't worry about it anymore. We haven't talked about the Adrian Peterson case, which is a whole other can of worms in the case of Adrian Peterson, where... He, like many uh, parents, disciplined his child by getting a switch or a, a branch or a paddle, uh, but apparently his spanking turned into something a little bit more violent when it created visible welts and open wounds on his four-year-old child. Uh, Adrian Peterson has come out in a tweet saying, I may have gone overboard in disciplining my child, but is this enough to get him suspended and have Radisson pull its uh, support of the Minnesota Vikings? Bob Hines. Well, let me, let me say that we haven't... There is now evidence that with another woman who he had a child, he has also molested, beaten that child. Yeah. That's an important choice of phrase there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, he's... he's, he's, he's this is the second child that he apparently has been uh, beaten. But I can tell you right now, I got spanked. I, 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 my mom did amazing things with a Rubbermaid spatula and a wood spoon. It shows. <laughs> I turned. I turned out okay. Look, every one of us. Well, we'll be the judge let's, of that. Let's make a vote. <laughs> hey, hey, hey! Leave, my mom's a saint. You leave her out of this, pal. The, but the reality is, our parents, our parents, I mean, we've all been spanked. Our parents today, had they disciplined us today the way they did back in those days, would have been arrested. And yet, the parents still have a responsibility, and it's inherent to them that they have a choice on how they discipline. My sister chooses not to spank, but that doesn't take away the fact that I see friends of mine who will take a flat hand and Tap them in the rear end. Yeah, Alan Moore. There's, there's an interesting standard that I think is in part of the law in some in some states, and that is, if your punishment of your child requires medical attention, then by definition you have crossed a line. Um, that's not an easy, clear line. All that means is you hurt a kid and you don't get him medical attention. This is a four-year-old Peterson's uh, child, and the, the prior one was apparently about that same age. Boy, you got to watch out for those troublemaking four-year-olds so you can just whip them. Peterson, as a child, was whipped, and there's some stories uh, with belts and so on by his father. Uh, he thinks he turned out well. Um, we, we've, got, we've got in many families all over the U.S., um, cultures that are that are handed down parent to child parent to child of whoopings as as this was called by by Peterson I hate that stuff and I think it is appropriate 
subject matter for the league when it looks beyond pure law enforcement to set standards on. It's just another subject. And we can sit here and say, okay, what's worse? Cold clocking your girlfriend or over disciplining kid in a way that, that has open welts on his buttocks and scrotum. Um, or raping somebody when you're when uh, you're in a bar. Wow, that's Roger Goodell's world, and he's got to figure out how you have some kind of process to figure out what a punishment is appropriate. How you inform people? What do you do with first offense? What do you do with a subsequent offense? This is complicated stuff. It is. I'm happy that there's some women that, that can give advice. I think you need some men giving advice, too. This is just really hard, um, and I have some sympathy for these perpetrators well, who had no idea that they would lose their livelihood. Right. Well, we're going we're gonna, to – obviously, this is not a situation that's going to go away anytime soon. We're going to keep an eye on this. But when we come back, we're going to go back overseas, and we're going to talk about a separate Scotland – Scots go to vote on Thursday to decide whether they leave the United Kingdom and become an independent member of the Commonwealth or stay with the United Kingdom and take their governance from London by way of Edinburgh. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in four minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches blended, single malt, anything you want Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
one more time. One more once. And we're back here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Hey, we're going to talk a little bit of British politics. It is, this is the week where the Scots go to vote to decide whether they are going to be an independent country separate from the United Kingdom, or do they remain with the United Kingdom and take their their direction from London. It has been what largely saw what large amounts of politicos in Great Britain felt was going to be a slam dunk for the no vote has recently become a very very contentious and very tight race to decide the future of Scotland. As of latest polls, one poll coming out of London has the no vote ahead by one point with a 3 to 5% margin of error. Uh, one of the leading newspapers out of Glasgow has the yes vote to separate from the UK, 51-49, same margin of error. And there have been several polls conducted by the BBC which shows that it is literally a 50-50 split down the middle. So trying to handicap this is going to be crazy. It looks like it's going to come down to a game day decision. But there are pros and cons to all things as you vote. But the large one right now that the no vote is touting is the economic impact to Scotland. Uh, Bob Hines, when you look at this vote, this is something that we see about once every generation. They did it in 78. They did it again in 97. And now in 2014, we're seeing an independence vote again. But for the first time in history, there is a strong, strong opposition to London, strong enough to possibly give them independence. What could possibly be some of the ramifications of Scotland voting aye and saying, we're out of here, we'll still be part of the Commonwealth, though? Well, uh, some of the, one, of the con one of the results would be that the, uh, uh, the British, uh, I think, six uh, nuclear submarines... Which are currently stationed in Scotland... And that's the only place on the eastern, uh, on the uh, western side of Scotland or, or, or England that they can put them. 
if if uh, Scotland uh, goes independent, those uh, that those uh, submarines and their atomic weapons, their nuclear weapons, are going to have to slide all the way around to southeastern, south southwestern England. It'd be a terrible problem for the the, the British. They just you know won't be able to be what they are doing. They won't be able to work as well with their with their maritime responsibilities with, on the NATO. With respect to um, respect to England, but Scotland, what you're going to see is, um, you know, they have oil. It's a wasting asset. It's, it's they're not pumping as much as they were five and ten years ago, and another ten years it'll probably it may be even much less it is today. I think uh, they'll probably have to structure their own pension systems. Their own, uh, oh, it's going to be a great deal of problems. It is not a particularly wealthy country. It doesn't have a very modern, it has not modernized its, its uh, economic system. Uh, its, its industry is mostly uh, small. It is not a country that I think can, uh, can succeed well. If they do it, it would be more a matter of ego. We want to be, we want to be an independent country. I think it would probably be a long-term, a fundamentally, a very big mistake for the Scottish people. Uh, Denise Crop. Well, it, it's bigger than just Scotland. You've got Spain looking at it because for several years you had the Catalans and the um, País Vascos saying that they wanted uh, that they wanted the same type of independence that Scotland had. You know, in the '92 Olympics, um, they spoke three languages: they spoke Castilian, they spoke Catalan, and they spoke English because it was held in Barcelona. And because it was in Barcelona, the Catalans said to the, to the head of the Spanish government, eh, we get to speak our own language here. So I mean, they're looking at it, the Belgians are looking at it right now, because for a while they didn't even have their own government because they have such a division in different ethnic groups that, are, that uh, exist right now in Belgium that they're also saying, hey, wait a second, if Scotland goes, we're also going to go, and there is a move up front, because when you look at 78, 78 predates the Maastricht Treaty of the early 90s, which created the European Union and the One Union. There's a lot, there are a lot of folks in Europe right now that are saying, we don't like this One Union, and that it's bleeding into the, we don't like the United Kingdom, and it's saying, we actually want to be our own country, and we want to be our own sovereign nation. Alan Moore. Yeah, I'm less convinced that if, the, if, if it is an I vote, that everybody else will say, let's do it. Because I think there's going to be, wow, here's a real-world experiment. Let's see what happens. Because what, what, the, what, the, what the proponents of keeping the U.K. together have started saying, the politicians and major corporations, some of which are headquartered in Scotland, are saying, if you do this, we're moving. We are moving down to London. We will move to... Including Royal Bank of Scotland. A couple of, you know, a couple of big... A couple <laughs> True of big, story. Yeah, the Royal Bank of Scotland has come out and said, absolutely. we will move to that's, London. That's my point, that there's, that there's some, some major corporations, major employers. The, uh, the oil, as Bob points out, is, uh, is on the decline. Um, who knows with the atomic subs, they could conceivably have some kind of a lease agreement, keep them there. I don't know about that. There's a whole host of things... Of, it, 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 of unintended consequences that nobody really knows. It's sort of, you've got to be careful what you wish for. Um, and it's one of these bizarre things where there are people with a powerful set of feelings. A lot of people have also switched opinion. People are mad at the scare tactics of, of both the, sides. The, uh, on, on, on both sides. And, and then there's a lot of people who just 
don't really care. That's kind of fun. It's like, let's shake it up. It's a little bit like in Minnesota when they decided to vote in uh, Jesse Ventura. You know, Are you comparing the Scottish independence vote to the yes, Jesse Ventura vote? I'm talking vote? about the mindset of, here's this wrestler. Let's put him in governor because who cares? And, the, and there's, there's got to be some but, segment of people who say, who cares if we're separate or not? Let's see what happens. But, Dan Lipner, you, you've got a situation where if, in fact, they do say yes, the no sign has been saying, look, this is a bell you cannot unring. There is, however, in support of the I vote, you've got uh, questions about the stability of the National Health Service out of London. Uh, Scotland would take over its own National Health Service, and they've all said, as a centrist right government, there would be privatization of that, saving Scots apparently tons of money. Uh, police forcing, uh, police forces would be enhanced. National sovereignty would be increased. There's a big argument that's directed at the pride that is the Scottish people. Well, this is actually a bigger question, and this also goes to Denise's point. Globally, there's been a bit of a devolution of the nation state, and, and shockingly to me, this is also hitting the UK, that the, a, a certain disconnect from central governments, whatever they might be throughout Europe, parts of Africa, uh, it's just occurred. And the, that devolution uh, is a real thing. And why that is and what, what people hope to gain from it, and this is to Alan's point, it's not clear to me that any of those devolutions where somebody has broken off from a long-term partnership um, has led to the betterment of either party once that separation has occurred. Um, I'm, I would not, don't want to intermix the EU because that's a different kettle of worms. Yeah. It's just an economic partnership. But an actual nation state, when they've broken up, everyone's worse. And the fact that the governments have been unable to connect with the populations and keep this as a united thing that is good for everyone is amazing to me. But before I go to Carl, though, Dan, you know, when you talk about everybody's been worse off when they separate and they create their own countries – the reality is this is the first Commonwealth nation, Western civilized nation that we've seen do this in modern history. You're talking, I mean, many of the same, many of the same things were said about giving Ireland independence back in the early 1900s. People said the same thing about Canada having self-governance and that the people of Canada would would, would feel the impact of that back in the 1800s. The same arguments are being used, but if you look at the examples of everybody from the Bahamas to Canada to Ireland, it seems that they thrived in some instances. Uh, I, I, I think you're mixing apples, apples and oranges. Why? Um, in other cases, including Ireland, these are territories that were conquered. Yeah. So th 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 these were not partners that were actually fully involved really heck that's part of our own revolution here we we didn't actually have a say in the government that was run, that was running us um that being said uh the canadians the queen still has juice in canada well as they will in know. scotland the scottish government has already said that they would remain part of the commonwealth and that's to be seen the the the, the, the queen has actually chimed in on this uncharacteristically and said there will be consequences for this vote well, so it was a rather ominous statement <laughs> Carl Tubin. You know, the, the, the other the question, when you talk about the Queen, the question it comes to mind that the royal family 
has holdings in uh, Scotland. Including the vacation home at Balmoral. Exactly. So, you know, what happens there? Does, does Scotland come in and say, these are our lands, not your lands? Yes. Or, or do they do they settle with the, the royal family? I mean, this, this, could be a big, this could be another big problem for them. But Alan Moore, when you look at when you when you look at Scotland, I mean, you know, I'm in celebration of the vote on Thursday, drinking my single malt scotch, their biggest export, along with oil and tourism. You, you look at the Scot the Scottish economy itself. Scotland has the ability to build its own economy based on its own demographics, something it really hasn't been able to do under. English rule. This seems like an opportunity to see another possible strong or moderately strong economy to emerge, giving good growth to different sectors. No, I don't see it that way. I think that that, uh, uh, and I don't buy the notion that, that being part of of uh, the UK has has held Scotland back. The only, the only thing they've got to hold, uh, 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 got a hold on here is the oil. That's the one thing that, and it's not even clear to me that, that they necessarily own all of it, but that's an issue that will have to get sorted out if there is an I vote. That's, that's where the juice comes from in terms of arguing that we can do better on our own than, uh, than continuing to, to be part of, of the, the UK. It's a pretty barren place. I've been to Scotland. I've got Scottish roots. Um, there are a lot of Scots in America who left because both politically and geographically and weather-wise and so on, it just wasn't the, 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 the best place to have a, for example, family farm um, where nothing would grow. <laughs> Um, so, so I, I you know, it sounds it's like the Congress. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's not. Did you just compare Scotland to Congress, Al? No, I talked about places where nothing will grow. Oh, okay. Oh, true point. True point. So I, I'm just, I'm just uh, uh, not convinced that it's going to suddenly generate, you know, a, a wonderful generation of creativity and, uh, and so on. I think that more to the point, major companies that are major employers who are headquartered there, like the Royal Bank of Scotland, would say, you know something? I think we're better off down in London than, than up here. Um, and job losses, confusion, taking over all of these responsibilities they may not like the, the National Health Service, some of them, and some of them think it's a godsend. Um, but if, if they're no longer part of it, how does that work? Can they subcontract to the national government and keep it going? I don't know. There's a lot of people who hope they never have to face those questions, but this is a toss-up. Bob Hines. The Scottish economy is, is not strong independently. Uh, most of their uh, the, their industrial cities are old. The factories are old. The, uh, the employment is smaller all the time. It, it is not a dynamic place, and it it seems to me that it would be very hard for the Scottish government, if it was independent, to be able to revitalize those revitalize those areas because over the last 40 years they have dwindled and dwindled and dwindled. 
And it's just, it's just but many in Scotland, Bob, would argue that the dwindling has become has been due to the fact that they have had no ability to self-govern. That had they had the ability to no. self-govern, that they would have been more prosperous. Nonsense. Yeah. That's some of the argument that we're well, hearing out of Edinburgh. Well, I'm sure you. I'm sure you are. But out of Glasgow or some of the some of the other areas, you will find you've got factories that are look something like Detroit. And that's not a very good start. But you see that in Liverpool, though, at the same time. Well, it's, all I know is that you, you look at some of those cities up there, they are, they are, unemployment is huge. I don't understand. Congressman Al. There, 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 there is a, a feeling among certain people in various places that they would be better off if they disengaged from somebody they've been with a long time. I had two counties in my congressional district that at different times decided that the eastern half should break off from the western half of the county. In both instances, the parts that wanted to break off were economically depressed areas that didn't have much opportunity to really provide uh, a better economy. And they wanted to go, it was ridiculous. Uh, and you know, I, I I don't understand why these people want to split. Uh, it's it's usually emotional. It's the, the common sense in everything that uh, every one of these situations that I know about. The, the 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 common sense and the economic sense says don't split. But. People sometimes just get all excited about it. Carl Tubin. Part of it is part of it could be just to kick the shins out of uh, England and say oh. we can do this, you know. And it is usually that kind of an yeah. attitude, which is not. not it, it, it's a nice way to think, but it's a bad. But it, but it strikes me. But, but but to that point though, it it, it, it strikes me as well when you say kicking the shins. It seems, though, that the folks down in Whitehall in British Par- in the English Parliament right now have a concern because as the, no, as the yes vote has gained momentum and as the yes vote has closed the gap of what was largely going to be a landslide, according to some that, uh, that I've talked to in Edinburgh, uh, they have since, as those numbers have dwindled, said, look, if you vote no, we'll give you more autonomy in the little puppet uh, uh, legislature that you have in Edinburgh. We'll give you a little bit more self-governance, but that still has not been enough to appease those in Scotland that are supporting the yes vote. Uh, Alan Moore. Yeah, I, you know, we'll see. We'll see. It is. It, it is interesting. There's kind of this air of desperation. Like, wait. Wait, don't do it. We'll give you a little bit of what you want. <laughs> uh, but, you know, as we talk about it, and let's face it, none of us know much about what's, what's truly going on in, uh, in the minds of, uh, of the major Scots, but we, there have been movements inside the U.S., particularly in Texas, wanting to split off. And, Hooray! Uh, and, and uh, you know, there's this, pro- this fierce pride. Uh, the only way Rick Perry is going to be president. We're better, we're better than anybody else. And, uh, and we resent uh, uh, rules coming in from Washington. Um, and, uh, and yet that movement, although people, 
some people talk about it. I don't think it has ever gained any significant traction. Um, uh, it, but it's, I think, you know, when I try to understand Scotland, I try to understand the mindset of people from a particular state, like Texas, because that's just <laughs> the one that's the most theme there, talked Alan. about, of, you know, if we think we're better and we don't like the national role of the national government, we'll just give them the finger and go off on our own. Um, it's hard to see that actually succeeding in the U.S., but I don't know. Hey, Carl, I was giving the finger here. Right? I, I, got, I got it. Carl Tobin. Well, it's a shame that this podcast isn't going over to Scotland. It is. It is. I can tell you right now. I've talked to several of my friends over in Scotland who are also attached to the quote-unquote Scottish government. They do listen. I told them that we were going to be talking about this. They'll probably download it as one of our thousands of downloads. Uh, But I will tell you, I've talked to friends of mine inside British government. Uh, The folks in London are concerned. This is a major, major hit to the British economy as well because of the tax revenue that is generated by everything from tourism to scotch imports, not to mention the tax revenue that Whitehall gets from the pipeline action coming in from the North Sea. This is a big, big economic hit on both sides of the border. If if they vote to secede, it is worth noting that it could also cost the current British government to to collapse. I mean, there there is more than a a bit of conversation that the current coalition will not sustain There's actually something to that. I can tell you right now, I'm talking to the folks both in London and in Edinburgh, uh, the, the large gap that was closed by the yes vote was largely a lack of confidence in the current government sustaining and the increase in popularity in what they call UKIP, the United Kingdom Independence Party, which is largely seen as the British Tea Party. It is a real concern, and the folks in Scotland tend to be more centrist. They tend to be more moderate as far as their political beliefs versus your Tory, conservative, and now UKIP-type monsters that they see down in London. Bob Hines. Well, just yesterday, uh, the Prime Minister offered some more goodies, if you will, to the Scots to stay within the union because they see it too as a loss. It's, you know, they're cutting off a, a cutting off a significant part of part of it. Of Great Britain is no longer Great Britain; it's now England and, I and Northern Ireland and Wales and Wales. And the reality is, I think that I think the, the government in London thinks it's. It's important that Scotland stays where it is, and they've made it. They've made additional statements yesterday about what they will do if they if if the vote is correct. Now, ironically, the White House has also chimed in. The president, uh, oddly enough, not that he has enough uh, foot and mouth disease recently on foreign policy, literally ticked off a bunch of people in Scotland by getting involved in saying that. This is something that needs to be very well considered, and he suggested that they vote down uh, separation. God, <laughs> I, I don't get it. I don't I get it. I didn't see that. Yeah. It, it, no, no, it, I mean, I, no, I was not aware of that. Yeah, you're, yeah, yeah. You're well, confident of that? I, I, I can give you the source if you'd like. USA Today. Thank you, USA. Against he, uh, he has come out. I will, read, I will read you the quote from President Obama 
on this. President Obama, uh, we obviously have a deep interest in making sure that one of the closest allies that we will ever have remains strong, robust, united, and and an effective partner, suggesting that Scotland's separation will weaken... Suggesting that. That's some interpretation of those... Oh, of course, I'm interpreting. I'm a talking head. What do you expect? Carl Tubin. Well, this, this makes sense. I think from his point, he and Cameron have gotten very, very close. And he realizes, I'm sure, that if Scotland, if, if this happened, that the Cameron government could, could collapse. And I'm sure the Republicans in Congress will blame Barack Obama for Scotland leaving England. This is clearly one of those cases, though, because I think you're right about the, the, the risks to the current government in, in the U.K., that, that President Obama is very, very glad that we do not have a parliamentary system in America because the way things have gone the last few months, there would have been no confidence and he would have been gone. Although, although I would have paid to see Prime Minister's questions in Congress. That would be a show. Uh, but... But tell me, tell me you wouldn't see that. Tell me you would not see that. The, Republic, the Republicans would have changed that had, had they had your thing in place with Bill Clinton, who's president of the United States. Oh, I would have taken that in a heartbeat with Bill Clinton. <laughs> True. Reagan would have been interesting, too. Yeah. Uh, I have to bring up this one. That in the 50s, when Eisenhower was president, there were a lot of people in this country who said, if we had a parliamentary system then, we would have been able to change things. But it didn't. That's why we'll never see a third party. This country can't handle a coalition government. We can't even deal with the government we got now. It's amazing. We can't even deal with a two-party system. Yeah, yeah. Look at, what, look at what good that's done us in Congress. I'm so not getting meetings on the Hill next week. Hey, uh, that being said, uh, good luck. good luck to our friends in Scotland. Vote your mind. Vote your conscience. But that being said... We're going to get back to American politics. When we come back, we're going to talk about the Clintons' recent trip out to Iowa and Hillary's little adventure at the state fair. Oh, it was a glorious one. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Wow, a little bit of fat Waller, Lulu back in town. And I, I tell you, when I am back in town or when any of my friends are back in town or, heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu the most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. 
You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again I might not get back home at all Lula's back in town yeah. Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. Hey, we're coming back to American politics now. We're going to talk about the Clintons making a little field trip out to Iowa, putting their little pinky toe into the deep water. That is the 2016 election. Uh, Hillary came out this at the state fair and said that a final decision on her running will happen in the new year, meaning 2015. Thank God we don't have a two-year election cycle. We're only going to make it a year in 10 months. So basically what's happened also is uh, Ready for Hillary, the political action committee, had huge, huge presence. Uh, and, and of course, you can't go to a state fair and have deep-fried Twinkies and deep-fried Snickers without seeing Bill. And Bill was out there in force as well, just reining in his uh, populist support that usually surrounds Bill Clinton. You are just absolutely cringing right now, aren't you, Dan? <laughs> but the reality still dictates. Is this, is this the sign that Hillary supporters wanted that shows that, in fact, all the questions may be answered? She's gearing up for a big run. Dan Lipner. Uh the answer is yeah. She's probably uh, gearing up for a big run. Uh, that being said, she's still got a, a she's got a lot of work to do uh, and lessons to learn from why she lost Iowa uh, six years ago. Uh, she, she didn't and no, she didn't even come in second. She came in third. Um, and there are a lot of reasons to that. I was actually in Iowa uh, working for the Biden campaign and got a chance to see. He came in fourth. He did come in for it. Another, uh, another winner. Uh, but con considering the – and there, there, are, there is a lot of things being done in Iowa that people had never seen before. Individually, both the Obama campaign and the Clinton campaign had more paid workers in the state than any presidential campaign, as in already the nominee had had in any year prior. Both campaigns individually exceeded that. Nobody had ever seen that in Iowa before. But the, the Clinton campaign did something unique. 
they ran a rose garden strategy in Iowa, and Hillary would do would work rope lines in Iowa. And I'm sure I don't know if any of you have been to Iowa before, but that doesn't work with Iowa voters. The voters don't come to the candidate. The candidate goes to the voters, and that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. As the 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 entitlement approach that she had uh, six years ago didn't hit the voters the right way, which is part of the reason she came in third. That should be fixed this next time around, but still to be seen. Alan Moore. I think I'm probably the only person uh, at the table who thinks still that she will not run at the end of the day. Nope, I, I've but, said that a lot. But, but, uh, but nonetheless, if she's going to run, I think that she could have chosen a better way to reintroduce herself to Iowans than to take a famous phrase from the Jack Nicholson, uh, The Shining movie, where with a kind of an evil grin says, I'm back. Yeah. <laughs> I got to tell you something. I, I saw Hillary's speech out in Iowa on, on TV, and it almost seemed awkward. It almost seemed like she was uncomfortable being in, an, in a state that put her third in a year that was technically hers. Back in the day, Carl Tuvin, you know, if, if Hillary's trying to impress the voters of Iowa, did she really do a good job, or was this really a bad showing and bad timing? I think she did a fairly good job. You know, <clears throat> she hasn't been there in eight years or six years, wherever, and it's it's kind of tough with what she went through and, and her whole campaign kind of sort of collapse in Iowa. Uh, and she knows, I believe, that she has a lot of work to do, and she has to change her way of campaigning there, as she will have to do in New Hampshire, um, <clears throat> which she did really well. Um, she won New Hampshire. She won New Hampshire. But still, these, places, these two places, people want to shake the hands of the candidate, talk to the candidate. Uh, Paul Sarbanes... Uh, when he went up to New Hampshire at one point, told me that um, he's never seen a place where, you know, people say hi, and then they want to see the candidate. They want to shake hands. They want to get to know the candidate and touch them, feel them, the whole thing. Congressman Al, though, can, can Hillary rebrand herself more effectively in Iowa this go around? And is it possible... She can ingratiate herself to the voters of Iowa? I'm still thinking about the touching and feeling going on in New Hampshire. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Al, Al wants to go to New Hampshire. Yes, she can. Yes, she can. Uh, I think that this is, this is all the kind of things that people like us and other politicians sit around and, and just thoroughly enjoy talking about all this, and it's, it's just chatter. Uh, she, she, I think she's going to run, um, but uh, I, I wouldn't be too shocked if she didn't. Uh, and this is, I mean, this is nitpicking, I think, you know, about whether she was, gave a great speech. And, and will be, it will be, will be forgotten, not when you get to the Democratic National Convention, it will be forgotten mm, tomorrow is too soon, maybe end of the week. 
<laughs> Dan Lipner. Well, let's go into a little bit of the substance here, as far as who Hillary Clinton is and who. Why what, ruin? Why ruin? Why start now? Are you serious? <laughs> they're, why? They're, they're actually. Oh my God, he's read her policy papers. <laughs> Crap. <laughs> she actually did serve in office in the Senate for a term and a half. Uh, actually, so there there is track record there as well. So, and it's also where where Democratic voters are. Barack Obama's numbers haven't just fallen amongst all voters. They've also felt fallen that we should pay attention to amongst the progressive left. His numbers have also collapsed. And there is, there is, a, there is a desire for somebody to express the voice of the progressive left. Yes, some of them are the, the, the punch the hippie folks that... that the, the punch the hippie folks. The, 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 <laughs> yes, the phrase in Washington D.C. that that elected Democratic electeds in order to show they are conservative will use the punch the hippie strategy. The problem is the problem is that. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. It is true. Thank you. Sister yeah. And but part of the problem, but the problem with that is those are the same folks who vote in primaries. They help pick candidates. Yep. And balancing that, there's there's a real problem there. Since Hillary Clinton's uh, connections to Wall Street, her very hawkish stance on foreign policy, and she's a New Yorker, and and she's a New Yorker. That that creates a, that creates a bit of a problem, and there is a, a real groundswell for Elizabeth Warren. She has been able to go all over the country with her economic populist message that hasn't really gotten backlash from the right because it kind of resonates with working people. And the question is whether or not Hillary Clinton's establishment Democratic credentials will overwhelm her chance at still the populist base, which is what pushed Barack Obama into the White House. Carl Tuvin. Well, there's, there's something else, too. Now, the Ready for Hillary group has people in almost every state organizing for her and getting things ready for the election. Um, <clears throat> she can't make the same mistake that she made uh, in 2008, thinking, you know, I'm going to get this, this is going to come to me, blah, blah, blah. She's really got to go out and fight for it. And if she... If, if the organization is as big as everybody says it is, and my daughter worked there for, uh, volunteered there for six months, um, she, it's going to be an awesome group um, that's, that's on the ground now doing things for her. And anyone who comes into this race, whether it's O'Malley or whoever else, they, they don't have the contacts and the, and the ability to pull all that together. Okay. But, but, but Congressman Al, though, I mean, you know, except, she's... Except, excuse me, except for Bernie Sanders is the only one who has said that he might run for president and he, he would do it to try to pull her we're, to we're the gonna, left. We're going to have a socialist run for president. Oh, okay, there we go. So, but Congress, Congressman Al, though, when, 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 you, when you look at Hillary, and, and she's had a rough few months on the PR front, uh, the whole, I'm dirt poor, broke situation still resonates. Uh, there's still a lot of folks out there that, that believe that, in fact, she is too conservative in many aspects for a populist Democratic voter to get right behind them. How does she, how does she escape that, that aura around her? That she's too conservative? Yeah. Oh, Lord, well, you go out and talk to Republicans, I guess, and, and uh, they'll tell you that. That's but they're not going to vote in a Democratic uh, primary. I, I know, but I was making. I got that point. 
<clears throat> I I just don't think Elizabeth Warren is going to be much of a threat. Now, that's that's partially based on a speech I heard her give in Seattle uh, for Senator uh, uh, Patty Murray. Patty Murray, uh, and maybe she maybe she went moderate because Patty Murray is essentially a liberal moderate. Uh, and Washington State responds better to moderate liberals and moderate conservatives than they do the extremes. Uh, but uh, she she didn't give up a, a speech that was going to burn down the barn uh, at all. Uh, so I don't quite see that. Uh, and I think that the country, um, the United States is, in my judgment, unfortunately, a pretty conservative country, and I just don't think that uh, that somebody that's way to the left or significantly to the left of, of Hillary Clinton is going to take the nomination away from her. Dan Lipner, uh, well, I, I doubt Elizabeth Warren will be running. I think you're correct there. However, there is there is a longing for an Elizabeth Warren type, somebody who will take take the banner of of the economic populism that that she is uh, advancing. That, that being said, that economic populism is there in the Tea Party too. There's a giant undercurrent of people who do not feel connected to what is going on in the country. With Wall Street still booming under our uh, Muslim socialist Kenyan president, um, <laughs> that, that, that it's not hitting Main Street. That it's, Wall Street's doing great, and could not have could not be asking for more. Even though still, even though they're still crying. They've elected a head of cheese. Well, they always have done well. More. My God. That being said, Main Street is still hurting. Average Americans are still struggling, and there is almost no voice for them. And that undercurrent needs to will will be present in both the Democratic and Republican primary. The only question is who gives voice to it. Well, I mean, mean, let's be honest. I mean, Hillary Clinton does not go out to Iowa because she enjoys seeing the bridges of Madison County. She's out there for a very distinct purpose. Alan Moore, does does her going out there this early and making the statements and having the political show that she did further push Iowa as a catalyst for 2016? Look, I... Whether we like it or not, Iowa plays a, a grotesquely outsized role in this whole process. That's why um, we're all in favor of ethanol. And, and, <laughs> that's right. Wow. And as Dan pointed out, it's not just you got to show We're not up. talking about the renewable fuel standard. You, you don't not only have to do more than show up. you got to interact. you got to have teas with, with, with scores and scores and scores of people. It's a, it's a crazy way for the process to work, but it's how it works. Having said that, um, I truly, you know, even though I think she will not run, I don't believe she's finally decided that yet. And uh, she's just trying to keep the option open to her. She realizes that with all these people that Carl talked about who are around the country, you do have some duty to them too to say, hey, you guys, never mind. Thanks so much. So, but, but I think when she goes out there, she's, uh, not only trying to eh, test the waters a little bit in a place that wasn't very kind to her, but don't forget, she went out there to honor uh, Tom Harkin, 
who she's known and worked with, as has her husband, for many, many years. So this was a way you could say, this is Tom's steak fry. That's why we're here, and we're here to honor, uh, honor him. And there's some truth to that. And she can stick her toe in the water. She can see how things go. Um, but, uh, again, I think at the end of the day, for personal reasons, not because she couldn't have the nomination. I think the nomination is hers. The election, don't know. Different, harder question. I just think she, at the end of the day, is going to say, my time came, it passed, it's somebody else's time. Wow, interesting. Congressman Al, you had a comment? He answered my question. I was going to say, what made, what persuaded him that she wasn't going to run? And you answered that, and that sounds you know, I, I very I, rational. I tend, to agree, I, I tend to agree with Alan. I, I think that she's going to see what she went through in 2008 and in that painful experience, along with being a part of two presidential elections as first lady, as well as going through a huge election cycle as senator of New York, uh, that, that unto itself, I think she would prefer to be part of the Clinton political machine that will handpick successors a la Kennedy's. They're, they want to be the new Kennedy family. They're not going to handpick no. anything. Wow. That doesn't happen anymore. But, but for her to run, she's going to be a grandmother. That's going to have a huge impact on her. She's closing in on 70. She's got a husband with a history, and he's got a history not only from when he was president, but a history since which is all going to be... Uh, Are you talking there. Monica Lewinsky history uh, or no, heart history? I'm talking about, I'm talking Medical about history. his personal history. His health isn't great, although he's taken pretty good care of himself. He's, he's become a vegetarian, I think even a vegan. Um, but we, he's also been, been, you know, rumor has it, you know, active in other ways in, the, in these intervening years, living apart mostly from his wife. She'd have to relive all the old stuff, any new stuff that emerges... Um, and she thinks, wait a minute, I'm, I'm going to be 70 years old, and I, I, think that, I think that I don't have the energy for all of this. It's a younger person's game. Let them do it. And let me enjoy the useful, productive work I'm doing with my husband and my daughter at the, at the, at the global, global Initiative. Yeah. So there's a, there's a, she, it's not like she's got nothing to do. I tend to agree. Carl Tubin, last word, one yeah, minute. I think, I think what, what's happening is she, she gave a fairly good speech. Uh, talking about uh, why why the Democrats should uh, should be in, etc. And she's going to be going out and speaking throughout the country during the campaign. And I think that more than anything is going to make her decide one way or another. If she goes out, and if it's a rough rough road for her to, to travel, uh, if there's kind of fiscal things that go arise. She might then decide, you know, this is too much for me at this age, and I don't want to do it. But on the other hand, if she goes out and feels good about this thing and, and makes progress and helps candidates, etc., she 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 might she run. All right. Well, with that, it's now time for my favorite part of the show. It's time for tell me a story. Time when we talk about rumor, innuendo, the latest happening outside the Beltway, inside the Beltway, and stuff we just didn't talk about normally on the show today. Congressman Al, tell me a story. Oh, my God. You always, I always start with me, and I never have one. Bob Hines? The end. Bob Hines, tell me a story. Quick. Think of a story. I've got one. Oh, jeez. <laughs> he comes prepared, Al. Prepare for yeah. this? Oh, jeez. He comes prepared. Yeah. Bob Hines, tell me a story. 
I believe that Scotland will see the wisdom of staying with, within the United Kingdom. It, it makes much more sense that this to be independent because of the limitations on their, their economy, the fact that their oil is, is uh, the oil is going to be gone in another decade or so. It's, it's clear to me that it's the smartest decision they can make. And I'm glad to see that in very recent days, Prime Minister uh, Cameron of, uh, in, in Great Britain has offered some more goodies to uh, keep them in, within the United Kingdom, and I think they will stay, but it will be a very close vote. Wow, handicapping. Carl Tubman, tell me a story. Is it in this decade? I'm trying to think. Uh, All right, hold on. I'll come back to you. I'll come back to you. Alan Moore, tell me a story. Yeah. The, uh, the Senate race out in Kansas continues to just be fascinating. Uh, sitting Senator Pat Roberts, actually a pretty thoughtful and popular guy, was popular? able to, was able to, uh, to inside Washington and inside the Senate, absolutely. One of the most popular, well-liked senators get out there. Well, I'm a great fan. Do I get to do my thing, or is everybody going to be interrupted? Hey, hey, hey. What's Alan, tell me a story. So everybody's he, going to hey. he had to uh, he had to head off a Tea Party opponent, and everybody thought uh, uh, got got through that. And now, in in the bizarre world of politics today, a, an independent candidate who doesn't even say which party he would affiliate <laughs> with were he to succeed. So hey, whoever's in the majority, that's going to be me. That's the that's the kind of philosophical underpinning we now have, and and Pat Roberts, who happens to be a friend of mine, and I'm quite close to some of his family members, um, is now trying to figure out what do you do now? You head off in a so-called independent who just says I'll go this way, I'll go that way, depending. Um, uh, the biggest issue that hurt Roberts is the fact that he, that his official residence in the state is a rented room in a, in a friend's house because he, he doesn't have the wealth to own two houses. These are the kinds of issues that now come to matter, which is why any, whether it's Scotland, Minnesota, the old days, Kansas today, you never know for sure. No one is entirely safe. We'll see. I think Roberts pulls it out in the end, but uh, it's gonna he's going to get a one. lot. I need a lot of help from uh, from the National Party. Dan, is getting it. Dan Lipner, tell me a story. Well, it's been talked about for a while with all the issues in the NFL, but even prior to that. Um, and considering considering that the NFL only invades another country one game a year, I am actually in favor of Condoleezza Rice being the next commissioner of the NFL. Here, here. I actually like that one. I'll, I'll, I'll vote that one. Oh, Congressman now has a story. I've now got a story. Is it in this decade? Go ahead. <laughs> I, I, I wish the people on radio could have seen that look. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, now you have succeeded in making me forget what I was going to say. Great. Mission accomplished. <laughs> Carl Thurman, tell me a story. If Hillary decides not to run, uh, there is one candidate or one person who would like to be president who is going to Iowa sometime this month. Which governor would that be? <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, it, it would throw everything into a, uh, a real puzzlement. And uh, how it would come out, who would, would Elizabeth Warren get in? 
Uh, Who's Obama the candidate? Joe Biden. Oh. Uh, and, and Joe would be probably the, the, the leader uh, uh, in the polls, etc. at that point. But it, it really would, uh, it, it, it could be a mess or it could come out okay. You would have certain other people get in, like Elizabeth Warren. But, you know, okay. let's see what happens. All right, there we go, Carl Thuman. Thank you, Bob Hines. Something to add? Well, I'd like to add this. If Hillary does not run, and as wide open as the Republican nomination situation is. Which is going to go to Chris Christie. It, it's, going to be amazing, it's going to be an amazing election if she, doesn't, if, if she does not run. Because we're going to have Elizabeth Warren, who is new to 90% of the population, you have a Republican nominee who will probably be new to about 90% of the population. It'll be an amazing race. I'll tell you, don't discount Kristen Gillibrand out of New York either. I she's well, I think any. she's got I think she's got legs, not my figuratively, point, but my point is <laughs> you're sexist. Oh, there you go. I <laughs> you my, put your foot in it. Yeah. Don't try to dig yeah. up. My point is it'll be an amazing election in 2016 because you're going to have two candidates who most of the public have really hardly ever met. In election. Yeah, it'll be. And we'll be, you won't know what's going to go on. It'd be an amazing race. It is. It's almost like a little known peanut farmer yeah. from Georgia showing up. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And boy, exactly. You saw what that yeah, mess was. Thank God that came out. You saw that mess. Uh, one of the, one of the, uh, this past week, uh, Congresswoman out of Long Beach, uh, Janice Hahn, out of California, Democrat, sits on the Coast Guard and Maritime Transportation Committee in the House, uh, went in during a hearing conducted by uh, Chairman Duncan Hunter about the current state of the merchant marine community. She came in to do one thing. She talked about what could be the biggest tragedy in the veterans community that nobody's ever heard of. The fact that tens of thousands of merchant mariners who lost their life in service of this country, getting equipment back and forth that ended up becoming targets for U-boats, did not get veteran status, according to the VA. They are treated as civilians, even though they were in the sixth uniform branch, the U.S. Maritime Service. Uh, Senator Hahn has done it twice, and she's now looking at doing a third time a proposed measure that would give veteran status to World War II merchant mariners. That is a huge tragedy, and that is something that's going to get some legs, I'll tell you right now. Which is the tragedy? The, the fact that they don't have veterans they benefits. Have the fact that, that they lost more personnel in the merchant marines than did the Marine Corps, than did the Navy, than did the, Ameri- uh, the Army Air Corps. The only one that came close were the Marines. This is something that needs to be fixed, and it will be fixed if I have anything to do with it. Oh, wait a minute, I do. So, that being said... <laughs> most of those people are they're, they're long gone. It, it's, they're, they're, most of them Not are... Not just the ones who died during... during no, 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 but, time, but the, the, those from that era, there are still yeah. a lot of World War II-era merchant mariners that are out there, and they're not even asking for a lot. What the proposal that Congresswoman Hahn has put up is... Give them the, a thousand dollars. Another monument on the mall. No, it's not a monument on the. Oh, stop, Al. Jeez, well, like cynical on the summit. 
Oh, stop again. Good Lord. On behalf of the cynical group around the table, including Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Carl Tubin, Alan Moore, Jan Lipner, I am your moderator, Justin Russell. We will be back next week. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob? This is the place to be. Absolutely. You can follow us on our website, www.backroompolitics.org. You can also check out our Twitter feed, at Backroom Politics, or you can email your comments, questions, and concerns to me, Justin, at BackroomPolitics.org. Have a great week, America. We'll see you next Tuesday. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.